0: Hi and welcome back to Gear for Growth. This week we have a great interview with Christine Williams, the principal of Smarter Property Investing. Christine bought her first property at 18 years of age, is a property investment specialist with mortgage and accounting qualifications, and we have a great chat to her about some simple yet innovative concepts such as sleep tests and cash buffers, and also the 10 mistakes property investors make. Here's Christine. Christine Williams, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Mark, for having me. I
0: appreciate it. Excellent. Now, you've got um, quite a few runs on the board with with property experience. You, you've you've been in the game for over three decades. You're a licensed real estate agent with accounting and mortgage broking qualifications. Um, you bought your first property at the at the ripe young age of, of eighteen, um, and you're the principal of Smarter Property Investing. What what, what have I left out, Christine?
1: Oh, thank you, Mike, for taking the time and effort to uh, research me. (laughs) Well, actually, uh, I currently write for a couple of magazines. I write for Ripe House, uh, The Frontier. Uh, Last year, I was quite successful in being nominated uh, with Finder.com in the uh, innovative area, and I went up against Optus. EME Bank and uh, the CBA Bank. Unfortunately, I didn't win the category. EME Bank took it off. However, I felt quite proud to feel that uh, my business and my information was actually in line with such esteemed large organisations.
0: Yeah, they're the been only competitors, other thing,
1: aren't they? They were, yes, they were. And uh, little on me coming from Melbourne, but that's it. that's it. The other qualification I have, which is something very new, it's uh, PIAA, so it's Property Investment Advisory. Uh, association, I'm a member of that, where I actually can advise on property and uh, as most listeners out there would know, as of the 1st of July uh, last year, uh, solicitors accountants, mortgage brokers, financial planners uh, are not allowed to give advice on property, uh, but with my accreditation I can and uh, it sort of sets me apart in the in the field of uh, just listening to people's opinion and people taking their advisor's opinions uh, when it comes to investing property. So it's not my opinion, it's actually advice that I give. So I feel quite proud to hold that accreditation and uh, I also feel quite proud that um, there's not many females in Australia that hold that accreditation apart from only being 200 of us anyway. Yeah, wow. so, And that's really just come out of, as you said, three decades, uh, trial and error, uh, living life. Uh, making mistakes, finding out what those bumps were, making sure that they didn't turn into mountains, and uh, working through and learning as I went along. You yeah, know? that's really where it all came from.
0: And, and it's a, it's funny we you know we chat to, to seasoned property investors all the time, and, and even some of the ones that have got some dizzying results sort of say I've, I've, I've made mistakes I've learned a lot of things along the way so there's there's a lot to be learnt from people who have made that those mistakes isn't there and then you know perhaps not repeating them yourself
1: uh, definitely and I I think when you make a mistake, it, it's how you handle it, and yes, of course, you kick yourself and why didn't you know, but in actual fact, you didn't know because you didn't know or you didn't have access to the information or you perhaps, you know, made a, might have been read down the garden path, and I think making mistakes is, is probably the, the successes of the business uh, because you know not to make it again and you quite openly say where you've made those mistakes, and I have to tell you, depreciation and not having a depreciation schedule was one of them, and... Um, and passing that on to you know my tribe and my clients and, and my family, my friends uh, and so that they don't make the same mistakes.
0: Well we're looking forward to leveraging off some of those mistakes um, over the next uh, few, few few minutes uh, Christine. Let's start at the, the beginning. Um, you, you bought your first property at the age of 18 and you, and you cite that as a, a key time in, in your investing life. What, what, what was important for you at that time?
1: Well, at that particular time, nothing more than, you know, young married woman um, starting off, you know, have their own home uh, when they first got married and together with your husband paying it off very quickly because that's what you had to do. And because, uh, you know, you owned your own home, have your family, then you you work until you're 65 and then eventually live off on your pension. So from a in hindsight, uh, of course, it was an excellent decision. Um, the bad decisions that followed it was that, uh, we were fortunate enough to sell in boom. So from a you know, $15,000 investment, it was sold sort of less than 10 years later or 10 years later at 136000
2: Wow.
1: Uh, that, that was in the 70s. And then, of course, with that, those extra funds, uh, we just went and built a bigger house, as yep. you did. And then you did that again and you just built a bigger house because it was all about the great Australian dream. So I suppose uh, the lesson in that was understanding that property was making money to get you something bigger and better but I didn't really understand it was making real money.
2: Yes.
1: And it wasn't until I became divorced and uh, suddenly single and had to start out again. Um, I came out with, after paying out debt and mortgages and private school fees, I came out with $15,000 and I had to start again and I suppose it was renting with two kids and so investing in property it was around that time with my accounting diploma that I, the penny dropped about, well, I can make money out of property. Yes. It didn't necessarily have to be a home because I actually settled with the renting. That, that took a long psychological acceptance. And when I settled with that and understanding that property could make money that's when I really started investing and that's when I really started making mistakes because it was you know read that fantastic book and follow that book and and you'll be on your way Um, but it wasn't as easy that it was actually finding that right investment and working the systems taxation system accounting system Uh, Property cycle system. Um, You know, so many words, so much new terminology that I uh, learnt along the way and um, now it's second nature and and just a normal language to me but I'm finding when I'm working with my tribe and my clients, it's it's teaching them the basics and that's what I learnt along the way but yeah, successes with uh, commercial property but a mistake with commercial property because I didn't realise that if you use commercial property as security, you had to pay commercial interest rates and it was at that time I decided to become a mortgage broker because I thought to myself, no, I need to understand how, I, ca- I understood leverage with money and banks, I understood that, uh, but I needed to know how to you know, work the system better to suit me and my cash flow. So commercial property, as much as it ended up being a success, was very much a mistake in the beginning. So, so yes, it's been Making mistakes, but learning from those mistakes and turning those mistakes into very big successes along the way. And, and
0: I'm and I'm guessing that a lot of it had to do with mindset as well. I mean you mentioned the idea that you, you buy a home and you pay it off and if you decide you want to upsize because you did well out of the property then then you do that. But it's um, I guess it's a it's a mindset that, that comes from a uh, you know, I guess a, a, a different generation that, you know, borrowing money was uh, maybe a necessary evil, but it's something that you should certainly avoid. And and how did that sort of attitude get passed down to yourself from your parents? And, and how did sort of seeing them struggle um, with, you know, financially affect your investing trajectory? Uh,
1: yes, look, it's a very good question. Um, unfortunately, my parents didn't end up you know with a home until after I got married Mm. Um, and yes I did struggle but I what I learned from my parents was you know if you work money will come in and my mindset was the way to make money was to uh, I left school when I was 15 and I had to go back to school and that's where I went back to school night uh, night school and got my accounting diploma and I thought the only way that you could make money was by getting a better job, um, you know, bettering yourself in career, educating yourself in career, And so therefore you would go up the career ladder and you would earn more money. But through that and through accounting um, and understanding my parents always worked, but they didn't necessarily get anywhere, um, you know, factory workers. Um, you know, they didn't really get anywhere. It, it was my belief it was your career. But along the career path, I realised that I had access to information And one of the first things I started to understand once I was comfortable with debt and that you are right, it's a mindset. You think when you owe the bank money, you're indebted to them. But in actual fact, I I understood through accounting, there was good debt and bad debt. And bad debt was just paying off your own home. Good debt was actually leveraging that debt to uh, buy assets that assets would appreciate and they would either appreciate inequity or they would appreciate it so much that when you sold, you actually had cash and you'd made a lot more than what you could actually save. Yeah. So, so appreciating asset assets, good debt, bad debt, good debt and leveraging from the bank and the bank becoming your friends, yes, that's, that's a part of the strategy that once I understood it and the light bulb went on, it was just no stopping me after that. Um, I'm very comfortable with good debt.
2: Yeah,
0: fantastic. Now, um, you've got a new book that's coming out, which I want to touch on a little bit later. Um, But the title sort of Suddenly Single leads me into the next question. Obviously, you did find yourself being suddenly single and and raising two teenage daughters. Um, And and I guess you, you sort of mentioned that, you were determined determined to to not see them sort of struggle in in life. Was that a big sort of driver for you in 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 pushing yourself to get the qualifications and to to learn what it takes to be a successful investor?
1: Oh, definitely, Mark. Yes, definitely. When I talk to my clients and my tribe um, before anyone even decides to invest, I think they need to understand their why, why they're doing it, because it's the why that keeps you on track, and so. You know, People tend to say, oh, well, it's about making money or it's about accumulating so many houses and all this sort of stuff. And no, it's not. I I have learned through becoming suddenly single, it becomes the why. And the why was I didn't want my girls to have the childhood that I had. Although it was happy, it wasn't financial, um, I didn't want my girls to have the same childhood. So it was very important to me to make sure that I did have a home for them. But along the way, I started to understand that I could have both. If Mm. I parked my money correctly and if I invested wisely, I could end up with both. And today, I can sit here and tell you I have both. I have a property portfolio and I also have a home and um, I've remarried. And uh, through my own children and my stepchildren who are all adults now and there are grandchildren on the scene, uh, you know, I've taught them the lessons that I learned, and we are encouraging them, and they are doing very well with investing in the property market themselves. Excellent. So it it really came out of desperation and and accepting that there were ways to do this, um, and still feeling comfortable about being in debt and being able to sleep. So I talk about the sleep test. People, there are people out there that that don't sleep now because they have a mortgage and they wonder how they can only pay their mortgage and why would you have a second, third or fourth mortgage if you're going to have investment properties. Mm-hmm. And and really, once you understand the system and if you can sleep three nights in a row after you've made the decision, it's right for you. Yeah. But if you can't sleep, you haven't passed the sleep test, so don't do it. You need to look for another avenue.
0: It, it sounds, I think it's it quite simple quite, when you it, say it that. It does sound very deceptively simple, but I, I, I guess there, there, there need not be anything more more to it, really. I mean, if it's something that you're you're innately comfortable with, and you're going to sleep okay at night, so I, I see there's there's definite merit in that. Um, what 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 keeps you going today, Christine?
1: And. It- Look, look, I love what I do. Uh, One of the things I talk about uh, in in my sessions and my seminars when I present to people is, you know, where do you want to sit on the um, what I call the wealth pyramid? You know, do you want to, um, you know, work for the rest of your lives and and end up up on a pension or do you want to work for the rest of your lives and, and, you know, apportion some of your savings into investments to give you a, a lifestyle of, you know, independent wealth? And what... What drives me is when I'm working with with clients, and I can see the light bulb. I can see that that second that that thought, the look on their face, and they go, "Yep, I really understand this. I get this," and they know that they're making a decision that they're comfortable with. So that's what drives me, and I suppose that's what helped me build smarter property investing. I, it, it was it came out of helping family and friends and, um, you know, eventually thinking, yeah, there is a strategy here and why not share it? And as a female, um, it's just something that I do. I You sit me down with a cup of coffee and, and I just keep talking and, and I just share a little bit of my story. But more importantly, um, you know, if I can do this, uh, anyone can do it if they really put their mind to it.
0: And, and getting back to that sort of thread of mistakes and you obviously highlight the fact that you've you've made a number of them and you can help people to avoid them. You you've got an ebook where you, where you cite the 10 mistakes that residential property investors make. Let's let's get back into the uh into the nuts and bolts of, of property and and are you happy to run through some of those with us? Of course, of course. Yes. Now you've, so, you've got um you've got an ebook um we 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 might be able to share with with some of that as well that will go into some some detail um but uh, but yeah kick kick us off.
1: Okay, so ten mistakes. So the the first mistake people, well not the first mistake, but one of the mistakes people tend to think is that they they think that they have to do this on their own and they don't seek the right advice and you need a team around you you definitely need an accountant and a solicitor uh, you know in some cases you need a financial planner uh you definitely need a depreciation specialist a quantity surveyor uh it's all to do with numbers and so you know that can be a big mistake by not having a team by being in fear of the feeling that you have to pay consultancy fees. Um, Look, I, I learned at a very, very young age that that you need to seek the right advice. It's also important to make sure that you're very comfortable with those advisors, because unless you're prepared to, what I say is, you know, completely undress in front of these advisors, how could they possibly give you the advice that that you need? Yes. So that's a very, very big tip. Another tip is really understand your numbers. So it's all very well to say that you've got a mortgage and I can afford it and, you know, unfortunately, some people, they book up interest-free furniture and holidays and goodness knows what, and they forget that they've got school fees or their kids have got lots of, you know, after-school curriculum activities. Uh, And they forget that. So you've really got to know your numbers. You know, be honest with yourself. It it is okay to enjoy life. It is okay to go out to dinner. It is okay to go on holidays. It is okay, you know, to, to meet girlfriends and friends for coffee. It is okay to let the kids, you know, have parties and things. So you've still got to have lifestyle balanced whilst you're investing. That's another big mistake. People just don't understand the numbers. Another mistake I find is that people... Oh, so often want to buy the house next door.
2: Yeah.
1: They just want to buy the house next door or in the street because they have done so exceptionally well, and they may have you know they may have purchased their property at one point and they've been living there for ten years, and you know it it may have doubled, if not, it may have only gone up you know um seventy percent. But they go, wow, my property's done so great. I think I should buy the property next door because I can watch the grass grow, watch the grass being mowed, and I can make sure that, you know, the tenants are going to look after it. And if, if anything breaks down, I can nick in there and fix it. Yep. Um, no, big mistake. That that would have to be one of the biggest mistakes. It's an investment property. It's a business. It's not going there every day and looking at it because it'll do your head in. So Is the that something I use um,
0: Sorry, Christine, is, is that something okay. that um, you, you find you have to overcome with your clients is to sort of, I guess, guess, get them to move away from the emotional part of the investment?
1: Definitely, and and I suppose that's, that's the core of that mistake. Because you are so emotionally attached to your own home, people who invest in their first property they treat it exactly the same and or they give it the same emotional uh, thought process and that's the no it, it to become an in, investment property uh, to grow an investment property portfolio it's a business you you're actually starting a business so we've got our employees out there and you know they it's the it's the people that pay them, it's their responsibility for the business. But if you're about to become a property advisor, you're actually becoming a business owner and your business is building a property portfolio and yeah. gaining um, out of that. And so the emotion has to be taken out of it and that's why you need to know the numbers because it's its about numbers. It's about capital growth, return on investment and why you're actually doing it. You know, Why are you accumulating these properties? Is it, Are you accumulating it to... Uh, liquidate and have cash to put in your super or are you accumulating for legacy for your children or are you accumulating uh, for that world trip? You know, it, you you've got to understand why you're doing it because the accumulation stage is where we accumulate because of what we're doing, but it's the exit strategy as to why we've done it. And I think when we go to buy an investment property, we need to know why we're buying it and we should be thinking about selling it if we needed to sell it tomorrow, we bought it today and we needed to sell it tomorrow, how quickly can we do that? So it's the exit strategy. So I'm very focused on not allowing my clients to make those mistakes and, and don't buy the property next door because nine times out of ten, you're paying for someone else's gain and you're not going to sleep because you're going to be so worried about the lawn not being mowed where mm. it's not your responsibility. It's okay? a blessing in a curse and
0: being able to, to see it out the window, isn't it?
1: Exactly, and another big mistake I find landlords make—they don't understand that their property manager should become their best friend. You know, your property manager, although you are paying them a fee, and once again, they're a part of your team. uh, Look, they're looking after your half a million dollar asset, so give them the reins to allow them to do that, and you know, advise you on the particular tenants or what you should be doing. You know, listen to these people. So. Yeah, so they're, you know, they're pretty basic basic mistakes, but they're the mistakes that the majority of investment uh, property owners make all the time. I see it time and time again.
0: Now, I want to talk about the types of properties that you favour. Obviously, you're a, a residential advocate, but what sort of properties do you look for?
1: Uh, For myself personally, I have a diversified property portfolio in those dwellings, okay? Uh, But that really depends on the client. So as much as I talk about this being a business um, and, you know, don't listen, uh, uh, well, you know, take advice from advisors, but don't listen to Uncle Tom at the barbecue or the relation that tells you you should never invest in property and they've never done it in the first place anyway, um, the type of property has to sit well with you, okay? This is your business this is your reason for doing it. So if you're a person that loves apartments but doesn't want to have the the, the thought process of making sure that they have to have uh, the lawn mowed uh, you know, and responsibility for gardening for their tenants, um, that's okay. You might be a person who can't stand apartments and you only want house and land packages because you don't want apartments. That's okay. Um, you might be the person that, you know, is happy to have a diversified property portfolio and have apartments, house and land and townhouses, that's okay. We have to understand that because it's your decision, I still work with what is comfortable with the client. There is no right or wrong in anything I've just said, it's just what you're more comfortable with. And once we do that, and once we understand what that comfort level is, we then go back and work with the numbers, work with the sleep test, work with, you know, the different type of properties.
0: So is that a I bit do of a, it, to... Sorry,
1: I'll let you finish. Yeah. I do explain to my clients though, um, a diversified property portfolio can help in many ways because we have many different types of demographics. We have, um, you know, families with children. We have um, single um, adults that have chosen to be single. We have, unfortunately, divorced parents, um, you know, that want to share properties for their kids, you know, we have an ageing population, uh, we have um, uh, demographics whereby they're transient employees, you know, such as paramedics and nurses and so forth, they go from different um, states to different hospitals and so forth. So, you know, we have so many different demographics, we have so many different type of dwellings that will suit these demographics. And I get my clients to understand that that's why a one-bedroom apartment still can be a very good investment in your property portfolio uh, for a particular demographic, yes. uh, just as much as a four-bedroom, two-bathroom home can be very important in your property portfolio as well. So there's not one size fits all, it's what suits the client's comfortability level and what actually suits their numbers. So yeah. I guess
0: there's there's a, I guess a bit of a compromise between you you don't want them to be overly emotional, but they've still got to be able to get their sort of head around it. They've got to be able to sleep at night, and and they may have some preconceived ideas about what is a good good property and what's not. So you're enabling them to be to have that level of comfort, but not be overly emotional to the detriment of say the growth potential of the property. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, most definitely. It is At the end of the day, it is their decision, but I help them work through the emotional. I actually help them work through the clouds, yep. the fog. There's a lot of fog out there, and I get them to push the fog away and, and make a decision. Because it is their decision, but I help them understand that by making that decision, they've made that decision that they're comfortable with, knowing that it really is around the numbers.
0: Yeah, so if they're really... Desperately interested in a one-bedroom apartment. You, I guess your your way of working with that is to say, okay, well, that can be a great investment, but we've we've now got to focus on the location because one-bedroom apartments will be, you know, in demand for, for perhaps capital cities, but not so so great from performance-wise in let's say Tamworth.
1: Definitely. Um, yes, I've got an apartment in Canberra. Uh, so. <laughs> So, yes, Mike, definitely. It, it, when they choose a particular dwelling, um, I, then, I then go into uh, research mode and I then start talking about the 10 macro and micro indicators as to why I would choose that particular dwelling in that particular area for that particular reason. So, yes, we, we can start off with a dwelling type and then I, I hone down as to whether or not it is a good investment or a bad investment and why. It, and why? Yes.
0: And how important is the location and, and what specifically do you look for when you're looking at a, a particular region?
1: In my sessions I talk about, uh, I ask people to put their hand up and say, has anyone in this room ever rented? And nine times out of ten, nine people out of ten put their hands up. Yep. And I ask the people who have never rented, uh, the people that who have their hands up, are they any different to you? Or, or I and no, they're not aliens. So what I'm talking about there is that when you're an investor, you should really be looking at what tenants want. So when you're purchasing a property, you as an individual, what do you expect around you? What do you need on an everyday basis? So it has to do with uh, you know amenities and facilities, and what those would be would be you know obviously if you've got children's schools. Um, you know if you don't have a car, obviously public transport. If you do have a car, what are the motorways like? Uh, Shopping centres, doctors, hospitals, sporting grounds, uh, you know, community things. So what is important to me about location is when we're talking about the particular type of demographics uh, for that particular type of dwelling, you know, are we making sure that they're going to be comfortable in their surroundings and they have access or walking access to the things that they want every day? So someone who is living in a one-bedroom apartment most likely wants the cafe um, lifestyle. You know, they want to walk downstairs and and see people and and grab their coffee and or something a quick meal Um, you know people who are living in a four bedroom two bathroom house most likely have children and so they want access to sporting facilities um, you know shopping centres and schools so it's more about the demographic as to what is in the location that demographic wants to um, live in as to what I'm talking about and that comes under the 10 macro and micro indicators anywhere from demographics um, you know infrastructure transport and employment you know, hubs and sectors, you know, we don't want to be driving an hour and a half to where we're working and and all that sort of stuff as well. So so it's very important. Location is very important, but the location is not just the thing that is the beginning and the end. It's actually got to do with the demographics that are going to live in that location as well.
0: Yeah. If we, if we take one sort of step, I guess, higher up, um, assuming that, you know, we're looking at two different locations, maybe in two different states, they both have the same sort of proximity to amenities, um, you know, schools, transport and that sort of thing. How, how do you look at a, a particular region over another when it comes to things like the supply of, um, of, of houses and apartments, the, the employment um, growth, the population growth and that sort of thing?
1: Uh, well, something pretty basic from that could be, you know, look, there's a whole research and there's a whole formula and there's a lot of things that I look at. But a tip for your listeners would be, if they're considering a location and that location has ticked all the boxes and then they're thinking about a particular type of dwelling, i.e. an apartment or a townhouse or a house and land, my tip there is to ring a half a dozen property managers. Mm -hmm. Don't call the real estate agents because they're there to sell. But a property manager, their job is to actually look after uh, the the investment properties for landlords. Mm -hmm. And a property manager will tell you whether or not... uh, the the dwellings in that area in oversupply or undersupply and if they're in undersupply it means that they've got a list of people waiting to be housed in that area if it's in oversupply they haven't got anyone in the books um, if it's in oversupply why is it in over oversupply and it, it could be a lot of developments have just hit the market and you know people want to live in something new rather than old or it could be uh, that you know a major piece of infrastructure has um, started there. You know it could be roadworks, it could be new schools, it could be a new shopping centre, or whatever. So you, your property manager is is and will have a wealth of information for you that people haven't even considered. Mm. So it's worthwhile speaking to two or three in the area that you're thinking about and actually get their take on the area and it will help you make a decision.
0: I think that's a great tip and and I'm imagining that property managers would be quite forthcoming with that information and obviously there's a chance for them to to pick up the management as well so you you find them generally easy to to chat to?
1: Definitely, uh, definitely and and understand they're also assessing you as a, a landlord because They don't want to take on landlords that aren't prepared to, you know, work with them and make sure that the property is maintained, okay? So, you know, understand it's a two-way street, but it's a very good exercise.
0: Mm yeah I think that's fantastic advice. I want to talk about um, your sort of strategy about holding properties for the long term. Um, you say that's that's a pretty important thing to do rather than say finding a, a boom location and flipping a, a property in a, in a short time frame what, what, Why is that part of your strategy the long term holding of property?
1: Uh, look, it's a very good question and uh, when I do talk about my strategies, I'm very open and say, look I'm a, a buy and hold girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have had I have bought and sold property, but I'm nine times out of ten a buy and hold girl. And the reason why I say that is because I actually work with the three T's, and I I, I call it the tenant tax man and time. And time is where you actually start accumulating real wealth. Yep. Um, yes, you can buy you know a property today, you know renovate it, you know pretend that you're on the block and get it done in twelve weeks, and and sell it, and you know make you know. Uh, Uh, money, whether or not that be tens of or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, And you might want to do that. Well, I have renovated and I don't want to do it anymore, okay? Um, And you might be very comfortable with that. But when I'm working with my clients, I'm a buy and hold, and it's more specifically because that's where I believe the real wealth is accumulated. Time is where real wealth accumulates uh, because, and that's why we've got property cycles and those property cycles are at, at different points in every different suburb in every different state in Australia. And so as you're accumulating and building your investment property portfolio, you then have uh, the opportunity that when you do go to sell, if you intend to sell, uh, you don't have to sell in a down market. You can be selling in a, in a higher market. So there's a reason for me, there's lots of reasons to have a diversified property portfolio. It, it's about buying when in the right cycle, property cycle and selling in the right property cycle and and so holding it um, for a minimum of 10 years, that's on a, a minimum of 10 year girl, um, holding it for a minimum of 10 years allows you the opportunity to, to pick and choose what you do with it down the path. Yeah. yeah so that's my reason that, and that's what I'm comfortable with.
0: Now, you mentioned also that um, in your ebook you refer to buying quantity over quality. Um, as being a mistake. Does that mean that you're a, a blue chip sort of gal as well?
1: Yes, I would. So, um, you know, I, I have watched and listened and, and listened to people. And, and I do know people that have got, you know, multiple 20 plus properties. So, and But then when I look at the value of their property portfolio, it could be the same value as someone who's got perhaps five properties. Yep. And although that those properties are giving them excellent cash flow, they're not giving them capital growth. And because I'm a numbers girl and cash flow is the thing, cash flow is king, and cash flow is the thing that helps you uh, accumulate and keep on buying. um, If you're just getting cash flow from a property and you're not building wealth, you can't get equity. And equity is one of the things that help you leverage with the bank. So, you know, quantity, May not necessarily be the right balance in your property portfolio, rather than quality. So when you say blue chip, people might be thinking, you know, obviously she's talking about you know blue chip suburbs. No, not necessarily. Well, actually, not necessarily. Definitely not. What it is, it's about the quality of the uh, the product, the dwelling, the potential capital growth in the area, and how long will it take to get that. And so I talk to people about. To become a brave investor, uh, you get very brave and you actually start investing in areas that are brand new, brand new suburbs, brand new town uh, master planned areas. Yes. And to get in on the ground, what I call the basement or the ground floor, you have to be very, very brave because nine times out of 10, there's not even a shopping centre there, let alone um, you know, full transport. But we know that if you have got the, your numbers right and you can hold that property, you're going to get the best amount of capital growth. Yep. So but if no, you're an investor, sorry?
0: I was just going to say, the, the, I guess the part of the risk is that there's no growth precedence either if you're getting into a new suburb. So that, that's where you're talking about that bravery?
1: Yes, definitely. But of course, the infrastructure and the master plan of the area will tell you what's happening to the area, okay? Um, but then, of course, an investor might sort of get in what I call about the, the third or fourth floor. Um, you know, people have started to invest, the shopping centre's being built, schools have Coming along, and so they've you know they've missed out on a um, capital growth, but they're going to continue to capital, capital growth. So the whole um, blue chip thing is knowing that that location is actually going to turn into a very thriving suburb, and it you know it's going to take a few years, and then you're the one that's gained the capital growth, which is equity, which allows to to um, uh, buy again, you... continue to buy. So it's all got to do with the numbers.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now you. Just getting onto those numbers, you mentioned that that cash is is king. So we're we're talking about yield there, but, but obviously, you know, you're, you're talking about having a portfolio of of twenty cash flow positive properties with zero growth is is not really part of your strategy either. Does does yield factor in any more than really the serviceability of the investment?
1: I'm not really sure how to answer that. Um, but yes, yield should always be taken into consideration. And this is where it's numbers. When I keep on saying you've got to know your numbers, you've got to know if that property is giving you three to 4% return, or if that property is giving you five to 6% six return. Yep. So that's a yield on the property. But you also need to be comfortable with, um, when I'm teaching my clients, I get them to be comfortable with a three to 5% capital growth. Yep. Now, we do know that we seem to be in a boom time in Melbourne and Sydney. And we, you know, we're seeing 20% growth over 12 months. Uh, look, that's an exception to the rule. And no one should think that this is going to continue to happen. If you are, if you do know your numbers and you're conservative with your numbers, you will be very successful. So if you work your numbers and you know that you want, um, you know, a minimum of 4% yield, that's what you look for, knowing that you shouldn't expect any more than a 5% growth.
2: Yeah. Of course.
1: If we get 5% yield and 10% growth, it's a bonus. But we don't count on that. We certainly don't base our figures on that. We're more conservative, and then you will end up being more successful. It just happens. But you can't predict which one's going to be the most successful.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you don't necessarily target um, a magic sort of sweet spot with yield, it really just comes down to the client and whether they've got the capacity to sort of hold on to to the property. Let's say it might be a low yield, but you see the potential for capital growth as being high and and a good fit for that particular client, is that fair to say?
1: Yes, it's more about a good fit for the client. It's the numbers and a good fit for the client, and I'm also very aware that as much as uh, we talk about cash flow is king, it is about that. And and so I suppose the next tip is, you know, things will go wrong and we need to make sure that we just don't, bo- whatever the bank says we can borrow, we don't go to that maximum for the sake of going to that maximum. We just make sure that we've got a cash buffer in place for when things go wrong. You know, and I've heard people say, you know, you've got to have three months uh, mortgage repayments and, you know, it is some of the things that are in, in my book. Um, it's not just a three months worth of mortgage repayments on the investment property, it's actually three months worth of your own mortgage re- repayments plus the investment property. Nice. You know, plus plus rates and so forth and and so you know, that's the next you know, one of my biggest tips. Have a cash buffer. Have you know, if the bank says that you can borrow an extra twenty or thirty thousand, please do keep it in an offset account. Please do borrow it because, you know, things will go wrong. They, you know, you might have you might not have a tenant for two weeks. And if you've gone into an investment property and and you're waiting with bated breath that they pay their rent just so that you can pay the mortgage because you can't afford that you're in the wrong level of mortgage or you shouldn't have been doing it. Whereas the cash buffer allows you to do that um, because you know there will be a time where you won't have a tenant for a couple of weeks. There will be a time where the rates are due at the same time. You know there will be a time where the property management fees are being paid and the rates and and um, you know you, you might have been out of job yourself for a month, so you can't claim your tax deduction for that month. Mm. So the cash buffer is, is probably the key to knowing your numbers and it is the key to the sleep test.
0: Yeah, and, and the cash buffer is, is something that obviously you talk about a lot. It's not something that's that's a very pervasive idea um, in, in the industry, or at least not not in print. But it's it's obviously a, a cornerstone of, of of your investing philosophy. Have, have you seen examples with clients where they've got into trouble by not having the, the capacity to weather the storm of of some of those unforeseen expenses? Um,
1: yes, and we'll take the clients out of that because no, my clients don't have that problem. But yes, I have <laughs> seen that with investors. I have seen that investors consistently and continually and. And once again, when I, when I'm presenting, the analogy I give there is that, you know, we've got a $400,000, $400,000 property we purchased five years ago. Today it's worth $600,000. we have lost our job. We haven't got a tenant. Uh, you know, rates are due. What's the first thing you do? And, and everybody says, well, you sell the property, you mm. sell the investment property. And, and, what I show them is that you know by the time they sell it with all the fees, uh, real estate agent fees, which are legal, uh, you know capital gains tax, yeah. the variation in in the rates and um, expenses that you know were um, outstanding, they don 't end up coming you know they might come out with one hundred thousand dollars, which is great, but what they 've lost they 've lost an appreciating asset um, they hadn 't thought about their own mortgage, because in actual fact, their own home was was more of a risk than the investment property, um, and they come out with $100,000, and they've lost their appreciating asset, and then they went and got a job, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, and if they had have had twenty or $30,000 sitting in an offset account, they would... Wouldn't have had to have sold. They would have still been able to sleep at night. They would have been able to make a very um, clear decision about the next job that they were going to take on. They wouldn't have to jump into a job that they didn't want, and they wouldn't be worrying about you know kids and putting food on the plate, all for the sake of an extra twenty or fifty thousand dollars sitting in an offset account that they borrowed five years ago that was there for you know bumps in the road. Yep. And I'm very very specific with my clients. You don't borrow it to go on a holiday. It, it's the capital, um, you know, pot of gold for your investment property. We uh, so. I call it cash buffer. It's it's it sounds once again very simple, but it is. It's a very simple idea. The,
0: the sleep test, the cash buffer—they're—they're they're very simple ideas, but fantastic advice nonetheless. Um, Thank you. You you. you I just wanted to to touch on the the strategy that you talked about before, where you're you're looking at purchasing in in brand new suburbs. So I'm I'm guessing that we're talking about you know house and land packages and, and things like that. Um, if that is the case, I'd love to hear some advice on on how best to purchase that as an investment. Uh,
1: d- You've got to be comfortable in doing it, okay? So it's not a risk. Well, actually, I'll take that back. Investing, Any investment uh, is a risk. Getting up in the morning is a risk. Uh, You've got to be comfortable in knowing what you're doing and you've actually got to really understand the research, okay? So if we look at this suburb and we know that um, our supermarkets, Cold, Safeway, Aldi, are not going to build there, if we know that McDonald's is not coming and if we know that... Bunnings aren't coming. Well, it's not the suburb to invest in, yeah. because if our large organisations, retailers, aren't prepared to invest themselves in that area, it's not going to grow. But if we do know that our, you know, large retailers, as in McDonald's and Bunnings and Coles and Safeway, are going to build in that area, we know that people are going to come. So the research model that I I use is basically the same research model as theirs. You know, a a, a Safeway or a, a coal store, they know that there's going to be 15,000 people within three kilometres of it. Well, 15,000 people need a lot of houses. So we know that the suburb is going to do what it's going to do and the added advantage there is build it, they will come. Yep. But you do need to know who the retailers are that are going to you know, invest in that area as well. So that's, that's a new suburb. Um, but also what we need to understand is that there's a natural increase in capital growth when the population grows. So when we look at you know where we grew up and then we think about when we would have purchased our home, it's generally three to five suburbs away from your parents' home. Yep. And then if you have adult children, they generally can get into the market three to five suburbs away from where you originally bought. So if you look at generational population growth and you look where the next generation actually went to buy their home, you actually see that the suburbs grow.
2: Mm. And in
1: Melbourne, we're very fortunate about that because we've we've got a lot of flat land. And so you can actually see how a a capital city grows and it grows with generational population growth. Of course, there's population growth um, in states that are helped by migration. And then there's actual migration states uh, population growth as well. So you know, people live in Melbourne. They don't like the weather, so they, they move to Queensland. Um, and I've been speaking to all my Queensland friends today. They're all they're, they're all okay after Cyclone Debbie. Um, I was and, there myself so yesterday,
0: actually, and just uh, snuck out of the airport in time.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. I'm sure you need an umbrella too. <laughs> um, so so there's so we look at generational population growth and we have to look at migration pop- population growth. And these people have to live somewhere. They have to put their heads somewhere overnight night time. So, so, yes, I agree with, um, you know, the, the 5, 10, 20k ring in all capital cities, uh, but I also agree with the 30, 40, and 60k rings in some capital cities. And it's a natural population growth and it's a natural happening there. So, you get in on the ground floor and then, of course, you get the biggest capital growth.
0: And you're leveraging but, of off course, the research departments of massive companies I mean Bunnings don't sort of go and put a store somewhere as a punt do they?
1: No they don't <laughs> no and so the answer to the question is yes well the research companies that I use are the same research companies that these organizations use so we do know uh, you know if I know where a Bunnings or a McDonald's or a, a, a coal supermarket is going to be built two years in advance you know that that area is going to have a population so I'm not suggesting in any shape or form that you have to be in new suburbs all the time. I'm saying that that should be a part of your diversified property portfolio. Yeah. Because as I said, I agree with the 5, 10, 15, 20k ring of any cap- most capital cities. Yep. Uh, but then of course you should consider 30, 40 and 60k depending on what that capital city has, depending on the infrastructure, depending on how their municipalities have their town planning, um, uh, town planning sites set out, Yeah, you know, it, it it's all research and it's all investigation and it's all knowing where to look for this information, uh, you know, to see where the next Bunnings and McDonald's are going to build because you build them and people come.
0: Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, I understand that we're, we're trying to sort of uh, tease out some great tips from you in a very short time frame. There's obviously um, a lot of different strategies that you have for your clients. So if people are wanting to get in touch with you, you Christine, what, what's the best way?
1: Oh, thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Look, I would love uh, anyone to visit our website. So our website is smarterpropertyinvesting.com.au. And if you'd like to uh, go in and have a look around, you'll see some testimonials, you'll see some hints and tips. That would be really great. But what I like to do with clients is have a discovery session first. And we need to have a discovery session which takes about 90 minutes. And in that time frame, it's all about the potential client. It's about them, what they would like to achieve, in the time frame that they would like to achieve it and why they're doing it. And we see whether or not, it, look, investing in property is a good fit for them. It may or it may not be. And if it is, uh, you know, are, are we a good fit to work with each other? Um, you know, because it's a personality thing. And uh, I find at that, that discovery session, it's well worth investing 90 minutes of your time to see whether or not this really does suit you. And it's at that discovery session that I can actually hone in on a strategy, uh, once listening to their wants and needs and, you know, their dreams and what they want to achieve, it's then I can hone in on the strategy because not every strategy suits everybody. It's not one size fits all. Uh, it's it's not about putting you on a on a sausage factory and saying, well, this is what you do and that's the next thing that you do. Everyone is different, and everyone's reason is different, and everyone's process will be different, and everyone's emotional level will be different. And I actually work with them, so please do go to the website and um, you know go to the discovery session section. And if you'd like to book in and say that you've come through MCG, um, we'll waive the fee. The fee was ninety-seven dollars, and we'll waive it, and uh, we'll just see whether or not if investing in property is you, and whether or not you know we we're going to suit each other working with each other. That's all I suggest, and. I do suggest it's well worth investing 90 minutes of your time to see if this will suit you.
0: You've got to love that. Thanks for that uh, kind offer, Christine. Now, I I want to quickly talk about um, your new book that's coming out, Suddenly Single, which is Seven Smarter Steps to Design the Life You Want and Discover the Key to Safe Investing. What, uh, What can readers look forward to in that book?
1: Uh, probably an extension of what we've talked about today. Uh, look, it is a bit about my story. The first chapter is really a little bit about my story. And and then we just get into the nuts and bolts of, you know, your why and how we do that. There's going to be some worksheets in the book. There's going to be some breakout areas. Uh, there'll be some testimonials in the book um, from clients. There'll be some sort of figure work. Um, there'll be a couple of exercises that you can do. And then, you know, um, really just asking the question, is this right for you? And if it is you know investigate it so yes that's it some tips you know the mistakes i've made and then then uh, not and successes and how i've overcome the mistakes by creating a, a successful property portfolio.
0: Awesome. Look out for that. There's always a bit of a delay with our podcast going live, but it should be just about the time where that uh, book will be very, very close to coming out, if not out. So um, we'll um, we'll share some some links to that as, as well, if we can. Now, before we go... Oh, um, thank you, Mark. Yeah, pleasure. Before we go, I just wanted to see if, if is there one piece of advice that, that you could impart to, to property investors or potential property investors? What, what would that be?
1: I think taking the first step, and the first step is if you think you can't do this, don't rule yourself out. Uh, My youngest client's 23. My oldest client is 68, Uh, 68, and had never invested. Uh, So if you think you can't, don't, don't stay that way. Start asking. some questions do not ask you know someone at the barbecue or you know the Easter barbecues and everything you know do take the time and effort to invest at least you know a few hours to research whether or not it's right for you and then at that point you will then make a decision so it's not about um, saying you can't it's not about saying you can it's about investigating and so when I finish my sessions I bring up 2007 so guys where were you in 2007 wow, that 10 years went fast, didn't it? Went in the blink of an eyelid. And then I ask, where would you like to be in 2027? Because trust me, the last 10 years went very quickly. The next 10 years are going to go just as fast. And time, we have time. Look, if you're in your 20s, of course you've got time. If you're in your 40s, yes, you've got time. If you're in your 50s, you know, time is the one asset we can't get back. It's the one commodity that we can't get back. And so the piece of advice is ask a question, see whether or not investing in property is something right for you, and then make a decision. That would be my piece of
0: advice. I think that's very sagely, Christine. And I just want to say thank you very much for your time. It's uh, It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And uh, good luck to all you listeners. Thanks very Those much. Those depreciation schedules. Love <laughs> them. Yeah, we
0: love them, of course. Thanks a lot, Christine. Have a good day.
1: Thank you. Well, Bye. Well.